0: I thought I'd do things a bit differently. Start with a video. Hope that's okay. Uh, I don't know whether you caught those lyrics. That is a song uh, by a man named Paolo Nettini. Um It's a couple of years old. It was 2013. And I don't know whether you got those lyrics in the middle. They're a little bit small to see. But this song is describing a broken world. Did you catch that? A cold society a harsh reality, an iron sky, that's the title of the song, of our minds that traps and limits our freedom and forces us to live in fear. Did you see that? I think, and the reason I started with this, is the question that permeates this song is the question, how can I be saved? Or, if you like, who or what, have the power to save me from my own society? Do you get that? For this singer, Paolo Natini, I don't know whether you've heard of him. You may not like him. I'm sorry if you don't. (laughs) It's not gods or religion. They just paint us with salvation. And he quotes, doesn't he, from a film. It was part of the song, I promise. I didn't just splice that in. Uh, He quotes from the film The Great Dictator, a Charlie Chaplin film, to say that we need to overthrow dictators, uh, unnatural men with authority and power, and we, the people, have the power to save ourselves if we just put our minds to it. That's the idea. It's quite powerful. Well, (laughs) it's up to you to decide uh, whether you think the singer's convinced by those words and it's up to you to decide whether you think you're convinced but the question of how i can be saved is not an original one there we go. we've been looking haven't we in the gospel of matthew over the last few weeks well more than just the last few weeks uh, and he's been drawing our attention to this man jesus could he be a savior and if so what do we need saving from And as we've been moving through the last few chapters, authority and power has been a constant theme. I hope you've noticed that. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew uh, and the end of chapter 7. The very last verse. I need to find it now, that's always bad. Uh, We read from Matthew chapter 9. But at the end of Matthew chapter 7 which we had a few weeks ago, it's the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we get this verse, these two verses. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. You get that? Authority. And as we move through the next chapter, which we've had preached over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus... Having the power to heal people from their sins, and to and to and to command the wind and the waves, and I think there's a there's, there's actually I'm not entirely sure about this, but a, a growing sense of, of Matthew teaching us about God, of Jesus' authority. Let me try and let me try and explain what I mean there. First of all, we see that Jesus speaks with authoritative words. Yeah. Oops, I've gone again. I'll do the clicker. Uh, he speaks with words. But we know, don't we, that we can have people who speak powerfully. We have powerful speakers these days. But then we see Jesus Whoops! healing. He has authority to heal. That's slightly more impressive. But again, we've got medicine. And, you know, people can, you know, the body can sort of heal itself sometimes. Um but then we see Jesus actually speaking to the winds and the waves authority over nature that's slightly more impressive we 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 can react to nature we can we I can possibly prevent it if we buy a raincoat we don't get wet but we have no control over it and then if that wasn't enough we get authority over the supernatural demons not only things that we have no power over but things that we don't really understand and I think a good way of thinking about chapter nine we had a little bit of chapter nine uh, last week, but a good way of thinking about chapter nine is chapter nine is an explosion of Jesus' authority. Matthew has built and built and built and got to this point where it just goes yeah." If we look at the end uh, of, at the end, verse eight of chapter nine says this, this is what we finished with last week. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. This is a key theme for Matthew. He's been building and building and building, and now we get to this bit. Who is Jesus? Who is this man? We saw the the, the men ask the question, what kind of man is this? And I think that's what Matthew is getting at. What kind of man is this? Our text for the day uh, that Angela very kindly read to us doesn't involve any miracles or any healings, but it is a sort of explosion as Matthew zooms in on this question, what kind of man is this? Or well, maybe, as I've titled it, if you're a skeptic, Jesus, really? <laughs> that's how I want that to be. <laughs> okay. That's what this That's what this chapter is. That's by way of an introduction. Um, so we'll dive in. We'll dive in uh, to verse 9 of chapter 9. But before we do that, let me pray uh, to God to help us as we seek to understand it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is good for us. And we thank you that we have your word and we can read it and we can know about you through it. Lord, we thank you that uh, we have your your word in English, in our language, and we have the freedom to read from it in our culture. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand it, that you would send your spirit to guide us and, and, and open our hearts and our minds to these words. Without your help, we would never understand what these mean. Lord, help us to know that this is not an intellectual exercise or or a skill in how well I can say this or how well you guys can listen, but help us to know that it is by your grace that we understand these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Very good. So chapter 9 and verse 9, our text begins with Jesus speaking I'm telling this man called Matthew, who is the author of this book, to follow him. And Matthew does. We're not given, pardon me, we're not given any other information uh, about this, but Matthew does follow him, and it immediately begs the question of why. If I went out into the street and said, follow me, (laughs) people would not follow me, (laughs) quite obviously. And even if someone with authority, such as a king or a, or, or a teacher, uh, went into, the, went into, uh, went outside and said, follow me, no one would do it. Matthew is kind of narratively tempting us here. He's sort of, he's sort of dropping something in, but not really explaining it. And this carries on into verse 10. We now see uh, that Jesus doesn't have any of the status power all special skills that we associate with authority. He's hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners, the riffraff and the rabble of society. He's not got prestige. He's not really got any kind of, he's not hanging out with people with specialist skills. He's not hanging out with philosophers or kings or princes or politicians. He's with the people we don't really like to think about. Matthew, again, is sort of teasing us with a narrative. Why? He's shown us that Jesus has authority, but then he's kind of shown Jesus just sitting with these guys. Why? And the Pharisees, quite obviously, pick up on this, and they come up, not to Jesus, but to Jesus' disciples. Did you catch that in verse 11? And they say, why does your, your teacher... Eat with tax collectors and sinners. They're asking, they're asking this question, why? Now, I don't know whether, um, in school, or even now, you remember the pleasure and the joy of making your mum jokes. <laughs> I promise I won't make one. Uh, that would offend everyone and all their mums. Uh, that is, it, they're not funny at all, are they really? They're not funny at all. But, um, when people make them, they're offending where you're from, aren't they? And the Pharisees here are really making a huge your mum joke, or better, a your teacher joke. (laughs) But they never really caught on. The Pharisees are saying, where does your teacher's authority come from? Or, where is Jesus' authority now? They're saying, your teacher has no authority, is the kind of implication and the hidden veiled insult behind their words. You're hanging out with these guys. You have nothing. But they're saying it to his disciples. They're not saying it to his face. But it seems that the Pharisees are apparently not that great at being discreet. Um, And Jesus overhears in verse 12. And he turns to them with a famous line. You've probably heard that before. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Uh, it's likely that this line is some sort of proverb uh, of the day, kind of a well-known saying. And the implication in Jesus' words here is that the people he is with are sick people, and he is the doctor who's come to save them. You get that? That's, fairly, that's a fairly simple uh, thing that he's saying. And I, But I think... That there's a little bit of a barbed insult in Jesus' words. The Pharisees, the religious uh, do-gooders of the day—these are the kind of the ministers and the and the priest and the vicars, if you like—they've come to Jesus and challenged him, and he replies with, "Well, I'm helping these people who need help. What are you doing? Why are you not eating with them?" I think. That this helps to explain what Jesus then says next. He he gives the Pharisees initially a challenge and says, Go and learn. Do you see that in verse 13? And then he quotes from the book of Hosea, uh, saying, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, I think it'd be great to turn to the book of Hosea now, uh, which is great because I've not worked out where it is in the Bible. Um, so the book of Hosea. Hopefully, I'll find it. Uh, Yep, there we go. It is page 904 in the Red Church Bibles. You don't have to turn to it, but it just shows that I'm not making things up. And in verse verse 6 of chapter 6, we see this quote that Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, the book of Hosea is all about marriage, but it's not particularly a wedding party. Or a happy celebration of many, many years of wonderful marriage. The book of Hosea is really a picture of the aftermath of adultery. It's a bit of a mess, the book, really. It's all about a marriage between Hosea and an unfaithful woman, which really is a picture of God and the church. God and the church who are unfaithful to him. And chapter six is is particularly about false confession, a lack of repentance and religiosity. Chapter six is, is, is really the wife coming back to the husband with flowers and kisses, but no, not actually being sorry for what's happened at all. That's what chapter six is about. We see in verse four that the people of of Hosea chapter six that the people's love is 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 fleeting like the morning mist. And we see in, in, in verse seven that they have been unfaithful again. After repenting, they've been faithful unfaithful again. And what God desires is not their sacrifices or their rituals or their churches and stained glass windows, what God desires is their heartfelt repentance and faith, which then the sacrifices flow out of. Does that make sense? One commentator that I read put it fairly well, um, and it's like this. When without a genuine change of heart and conduct, sacrifices were nevertheless brought, this amounted to dead ritualism, loathsome to the Lord. That's quite stark. And that's what this passage is really about. So Jesus' challenge to the Pharisees is to go and learn this, if you'll turn with me back to Matthew. Jesus' challenge to the Pharisees is, you are religious, but you have no love. It's outward service, but there's no faith. Go and learn Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6 is what Jesus says. And Jesus makes it then even more explicit, doesn't he, in the next thing that he says. Uh, Where are we? Uh, Matthew chapter 9. He says that he has come, not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He is the doctor, and he has come to heal people, but people's biggest problem is not physical, but spiritual. It's sin. It's a broken relationship with God. It's a failing of the marriage covenant. And Jesus has come to deal with this problem and heal people from their sins. He's come to call sinners, which is why he's sitting with sinners. It's a brilliant answer. (laughs) And a sharp rebuke to these Pharisees who must have just slunk away. We don't see them again until verse 34, I don't think. Um, And that... They must have been just completely yeah, ruined. What I want us to learn here, and I think this is the central point of this passage, is that Jesus desire, desires relationship, not religion. Jesus exposes the real issue underlying the Pharisees' question it's religiosity. They think they have authority because of all the external good things that they're doing as religious leaders. And and that's why Jesus hanging out with sinners offends them. But what they don't realize is that Jesus actually steps in to call people from their sin, not to find righteous people who he's pleased with, and then he can hang out with them. You understand that? I think that that is the central point of this little bit. Now, in some ways, I kind of wish I was done here. (laughs) Because the next bit's a little bit hard. <laughs> I spent I've spent quite a bit of time uh, thinking about this next bit, and it's I'm sure you'll have noticed as we read it uh, that it's a little bit obscure. Uh, we get fasting, bridegrooms, sewing, and wineskins, all in just a very short few verses. It's kind of more than a little odd, and when. And I don't, initially, I didn't really know how these two things fit. So we're going to try and work through this just chronologically as I've prepared it. Uh, And what happens next is that the the disciples of John turn up to Jesus. Uh, These guys are a different group of people. Uh, They're not Pharisees. And the John is John the Baptist. we We had a sermon on him right back in the beginning of our stuff on Matthew. And it's clear from here and other places in scripture that John had a bit of a following of people, Uh, even though he's not on the scene anymore, he's in prison, and uh, the fact that John was someone who preached Jesus. These guys should have been Jesus' disciples or Jesus' followers, Uh, but they're not. They're John's followers. So they're they're slightly better than the Pharisees, but they're a little bit misguided. They're following the wrong guy, basically. Um, I think we see that in what they say. they come to Jesus uh, with not so much of a veiled accusation like the Pharisees, but more of an honest request for information I think it 's noteworthy that they approach Jesus himself rather than sidle up to his followers. They actually come to Jesus and they, 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 want, they want to know an answer. the disciples just, the Pharisees just really wanted to trick Jesus. So if the Pharisee's question was really, Jesus, really? The, the, the John's disciples' question is, really, Jesus? Do <laughs> you get that? Not very good at intonation. Uh, a, their, their question was of cynicism. These guys' questions is of hope. They, they, they actually think Jesus might have an answer for them, but they're a little bit misguided in, in, what they, in how they're getting there. Now, it isn't clear from verse 13 and 14 whether there's a close chronological connection between the two bits. Uh, The word then in verse 14 is fairly nondescript about when this happened. But irrespective of whether it happened immediately or not, uh, there's a close logical connection that we understand because of the disciples' question. Look what they ask. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast?" but your disciples do not fast. Remember what Matthew has just told us that he was that Jesus was doing he was having a meal he was feasting he was having a meal with Matthew at his house. So while the Pharisees are bothered about the tax collectors and sinners bit John's disciples are bothered about the feasting bit. They want to know why is Jesus not fasting? Yeah. Now, to understand their question, we need to know and understand a little bit of what fasting means in the Bible. Uh, For those of you who may not know, fasting is basically not eating food for a period of time as a way of worshipping God. That is what fasting is. And often in the Bible, fasting is linked with mourning and sadness. Not always, but it often is. It's often done when someone dies and is a way of Lamenting the brokenness of the world, a kind of a picture of brokenheartedness, and it's clear from this verse, I think, that that's how Jesus is thinking about fasting here, because he uses the word fast and the word mourn interchangeably. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. Okay. It's worth noting here, just as a quick aside, that fasting is not always about mourning. Fasting is something that can be done as self-discipline. It can be praising God. It can be teaching oneself about God's sufficiency. And it's also worth noting that Jesus and his disciples would have probably fasted at times. Jesus fasts in Matthew 4 verse 2 when he's in the desert. Uh, and he commands his followers to fast in Matthew 6, which we had some teaching on only recently. It's also highly likely that Jesus and his disciples would have followed normal Jewish custom and fasted on certain days of the year, according to Jewish law. But in this context, this is about fasting and mourning. And John's disciples' question could be really phrased as, why are you celebrating and feasting when you should be being sad and mourning? Sure, the disciples would have fasted occasionally, but they're not, they're not mourning, they're celebrating. They're celebrating. And I think, once again, that these guys, even though they're being slightly more honest and they're being slightly more direct with Jesus, I think their question is once again born out of religiosity, just like the Pharisees' question. They're wondering, in a sense, why Jesus doesn't do what they do in the way that they do it, especially when Jesus just claimed he's the one that's going to save them. So their question really just like what we saw at the start, is how can we, how can I be saved? I think. Uh, let me use a really terrible analogy, but hopefully this will help. If you Imagine you um, go to the doctors and you have a, 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 a bruise on your arm, okay? And you've got a plaster on it, yeah? Uh, and as you go to the doctors, someone else is coming out and they've got a bruise on their arm as well. But they turn to the doctor and say, "Thanks, doc. Thanks for this cream. It's really good. It's really helping." You're going to go. Wait a minute. That guy's the same problem, but a different remedy. He's got the same thing, but he's got cream. What? 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 Am I, what am I doing wrong? Why can't I have that if that works? So these guys, these guys, I think, are coming to Jesus, and they're saying, um, "They're saying we we're fasting." but you're telling us you're the way to be saved and you're not fasting, so obviously fasting isn't part of how we're saved, so what do we do? We're really confused. I think, I think that's what John's disciples are getting at. We now, hopefully, begin to understand something of Jesus' answer in verse 15. Uh, he's describing a massive wedding feast here. And we've already looked at Hosea and how God's relationship is pictured as a marriage between his people and God. And we've already seen how God's people are unfaithful in the book of Hosea. And I think it would be fair to say that in this particular instance, Jesus has Hosea in his mind. Maybe he read that in his quiet time this morning. And so when Jesus talks about the bridegroom and describes this wedding feast, he's talking about himself himself. And he's saying that the disciples of Jesus are not fasting because he's with them. In this analogy, Jesus is the bridegroom and he's comparing his blessed presence on earth to an absolutely massive wedding feast. Remember that they're actually at a feast as well with Matthew. And nobody would ever fast in a morning, in a sad way, at a wedding. That'd be really odd. (laughs) I, uh, I've been to a few different weddings over this summer. It's quite nice to go to weddings invited, not as the son of Ian and Jane. That's <laughs> quite nice. It's quite nice to be. That's one of the good things about going to uni. You start to meet people that don't know you just from your family. And I've been to three different weddings, and I can tell you that at every single one of those weddings, there was a massive spread. And there was lots of great dancing, not by me, and there was lots of great music and everybody partied late into the night and then went home with a warm fuzzy feeling because weddings are fun. They're enjoyable. We like them. They're a celebration of love. And so no one would ever sit in the corner not eating and not dancing and not enjoying it, unless they hate eating and dancing, because weddings are a celebration And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. No one should ever fast while Jesus is with them because it's a celebration. Jesus' presence is a good thing. Why would you mourn? I'm right here. What this means is, in the Old Testament, people will have fasted because they were waiting for the Messiah to come. He wasn't here yet. Now, we don't fast We don't fast because Jesus is right there with the people. We celebrate, we have a big feast. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? Jesus goes on to say in in the next little bit that one day he will be taken away from them and then people will mourn and fast. Uh, This is referring really to his death. And the disciples, when Jesus died, certainly did mourn we're told in John chapter 16 verse 20 uh, verse 16 that his mourning this morning is only temporary however and it's replaced by joy Jesus resurrection now a number of commentators have picked out various applications about fasting from this verse uh, and although i think there's good application here uh, i'm not sure that the disciples question is really at its root about fasting. It is about fasting, and Jesus' answer is about fasting, but I'm not sure at its root these guys are asking a question about fasting. So I'm going to just ever so slightly skim over it. Uh, I will say one thing, though. In no way does this verse encourage us not to fast. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. As we've seen, it's commanded by Jesus, and we should do it. Um, If you'd like to know why we still fast even though this verse seems to say that because Jesus has already come we don't fast ask me afterwards Um, and if anyone has any questions on fasting afterwards I will try to point you to someone who has the answers Um, but basically I think that this verse is about really religion and religiosity and what I want to focus on is this verse 15 now becomes a really big telling off from Jesus He's saying to John's disciples, what are you doing fasting when I am with you? Stop fasting and feast with me as a picture of what's to come in eternity when we will spend all of our time feasting and enjoying a glorious relationship. John's disciples is born out of, question is born out of religiosity. What must we do to be saved? What can we contribute we, 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 we need to fast, because if we fast, Jesus will be pleased with us, and then he'll accept us, and then we'll enjoy the feast. Jesus' answer is very simple. Sack religion, sack religiosity, and just come and join the feast. Whoops. You're trying to get to heaven by fasting when the feast is already right here. That's what Jesus is saying. Let's be clear, this doesn't invalidate a spiritual discipline like fasting, But it does mean that we don't fast, and you can substitute any other spiritual thing that we do, we don't do those things to get to God. Let me give you a little illustration that I quite like. I think this helps. It's quite funny. Well, I think it is. Uh, It might not be. No one will laugh. Uh, Imagine you're invited. Let's say you imagine you're invited to a huge, big wedding. And it's at the Hilton Hotel. Yeah, it's a good place for weddings, I think. Uh, and you go along to this wedding, and you get to the front door, and there's people on the door welcoming you. And they say, welcome, great to see you, come on in. And your name is on the list, they're ready to tick you off. And you say, brilliant, I'm so glad I'm here, I'm here. And out of your pocket, you pull out a spoon. And it's a plastic spoon. And you get down on your hands and knees, and you start digging. And the doorman says, what on earth are you doing? What on earth are you doing? Your, your, your clothes are getting dirty, and you say, "Oh, I'm just, I'm just getting in. I'm just getting in." And he says, no, what, what, "What are you doing? The door's right here." And you say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 stop, whoa, stop talking to me while I'm trying to dig. <laughs> I'm trying to get in to the party with my plastic spoon. I'll get under, I'll, I'll get under." And they're saying, "No, no, 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 no. The door is right here. Come in." And you're not listening. You can see how stupid that is. <laughs> That is a ridiculous story. That is like a sketch. But that is really, I think, what Jesus is saying here. Stop trying to do all of these things that you might be doing and just come and enjoy the feast. You're invited. Come and tuck in. I think this really helps us to understand Jesus' next two points, which are two more obscure proverbs, thankfully. Uh, that pull all of this story together. And actually, when we understand them, they hold the whole thing together. The first proverb is not is about not putting on new cloth on old garments, because it makes the garment worse. The other is about not putting new wine into old wineskins, because the wineskins break and, the, and, and everything is ruined. Okay. In fact, I'll do this. What on earth is Jesus on about here? Sewing and wine skins? What? What, what is he talking about? Some people uh, tend to interpret this verse as being about church and culture. Uh, they say, "Don't do church in old-fashioned ways in a new culture." And while I can agree with some of those things, it's good to it's good to do church in appropriate ways for our culture, I don't think that seems to ring true very well. Matthew and Jesus is not giving us here a commentary on how we should do church. The thrust of this passage is that Jesus, not religion, saves us and has the authority and the power to save us. So what is this about? Well, the emphasis here in both proverbs is on the old and the new. You see that? The emphasis is on the old and the new. And whenever we're thinking about the old and the new in the Bible, it is good for us to think about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Or, better, the old covenant and the new covenant. Yes? So these verses talk about a new covenant new bit of cloth on an old garment, or new wine into old wineskins. And it's very helpful for us to think about the old and the new covenant as we're working out what on earth Jesus is saying. Now covenant is maybe a word you haven't come across before, uh, but it's very important. And it basically means contract. And I've already used it in my sermon so far, and we encounter the word covenant all the time because marriage is basically covenant. Two people stand before one another and give vows. They're saying, I'll do this, and I won't do this. I'll be faithful, and I'll look after you till death do us part in sickness and in health. You know these vows. They're famous. They're in, in our culture. Marriage is, is, a, is a covenant. Marriage is not about two people saying they quite like each other. It's about making commitments to each other. And covenant in the Bible actually works in pretty much the same way. It is God saying to his people, I will do things, and it's his people saying, we will do things. There's there's, there's a two-way kind of commitment. And God says to his people, the thing that you need to do is love me and keep my commandments. And the thing that I'm going to do is bless you, and will and, and it will be a joyful and wonderful relationship. God says to Abraham, you don't need to turn there, in Genesis 17, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and will greatly increase your numbers. You will be the father of many nations. You must keep my covenant. And this language is, is, is just all the way through the Old Testament. I'm sure you'll have seen it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, is a quote from Deuteronomy. And then what will happen? You will be blessed. You will multiply and you will be a blessing to the people around you. This is a joyful relationship. And the people's part was the law. They were to keep the law. And the law involved various sacrificial rites and ceremonial washings. But as we've already noted, the people were not very good at doing this. They were covenant breakers, not covenant keepers. As we've already seen, the Bible describes people as adulterers. And Jesus has already got Hosea on his mind and the verse after the one Jesus quotes says this. Like Adam... They have broken what? The covenant. They were unfaithful to me. So the, old, the, so the people are covenant breakers. The old covenant could not save people from their sin. The old covenant was, in short, condemning for the people. Which is why we have the new covenant. And the new covenant was not some new idea that was dreamt up by the new, the, people, the new Testament writers. The new covenant is all the way through the Old Testament. The Bible says a new covenant is coming, a new covenant is coming. The old covenant is not how you're saved. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, which is probably the most famous passage on old and new, old and new covenant in the Old Testament. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, it's on page 793 in the Red Church Bibles, and verse 31, let me just read this to you. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Did you see the language there? A new covenant is coming to replace the old. In the new, the people are not going to be having to obey the law, it's going to be written on their hearts. People aren't teaching each other to know God, they do know God. Now, people's wickedness is truly forgiven and their sin is not remembered. Okay? This new covenant is really inaugurated with Jesus. And the best way to think about it is to think about sacrifice. In the old covenant, the priests would have to sacrifice once a year with all sorts of ceremonial washings an innocent lamb to pay for the people's sins. But Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He came to this earth and lived a life of obedience, perfect obedience to the law, to the old covenant, which didn't condemn him because he kept it. But then he took upon himself all the times, all the sins, all the things we have broken that covenant. All the times we were unfaithful. And he died on a cross with the sins of the world on his own shoulders, paying the penalty for our sin and then rising again to new life. In the old covenant, the people had to pay for their sins again and again and again. In the new covenant, it is final because Jesus' sacrifice is final. Okay? Okay? So the new covenant, rather than being about law and having to keep the law, the new covenant is about grace. It's final. And this grace saves rather than condemns. Jesus in the Bible is pictured as the fulfillment of the law. It doesn't mean that the law is irrelevant, and it doesn't mean that the law is unimportant, but it does mean that the law is obsolete. We do not follow the law in the same way it is not by the law that we come to God but by grace uh, turn with me to if you will to Romans and chapter 3 um, we've looked there at the new covenant from an Old Testament perspective Romans chapter 3 uh, and verse 21 this is Paul uh, talking about this Let me let me just read this to you it's only a few verses But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, so not the old covenant, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. They were kind of foreshadowing. This righteousness from God comes, how? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all, that's everyone, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified freely by what? His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. I hope those words, I hope you, I think I can't put that any better than those words. And this is the new covenant. And this is what Jesus is teaching John's disciples here as they ask this question, they, and even more so, the Pharisees, are living as if they have to keep the law in order to please God. The Pharisees are doing that in a disdainful way to Jesus. John's disciples are doing that in a more honest and humble way. But both of them think, we've gotta do this to please God. We've gotta fast. We've gotta have all of this and do it in order for God to accept us. And Jesus is saying, no. That is not how you come to to God. Just come to God. Come and enjoy the feast. The law, religion, cannot save you. Only Jesus' death on the cross can. And only when we know this can we taste the new wine of the feast at Jesus' table. One commentator helpfully puts it like this. In Jesus' presence, we rejoice in fellowship rather than needing to seek his recognition by fasting. And I think you can talk there about fasting and a variety of other things that we do to get to God. What does this look like for us today? We said right at the start that the question, how can I be saved, permeates our culture. Paolo Natini is wrestling with the brokenness of this world. And maybe he's got an answer, or maybe Charlie Chaplin does. But Matthew presents us with a different picture, Jesus Christ. And he claims that Jesus not only has the power and the authority in words, and over health, nature, and the supernatural, but he has the power to deal with our biggest problem, sin. And he does that by showing us that we cannot get to God through our own efforts, and, and, and so the weight of our guilt and our shame is put on Jesus Christ himself, meaning that we step through the door, we stop digging with a plastic spoon, and we enjoy the blessings of a feast with God. It's worth saying that this life can be very hard. Being a Christian is not being seated at the table yet. But we know we have a glimpse of it as we walk with Jesus now, and we know we have a future hope in Christ. There are three people in this story, or groups of people. The first is the Pharisees. They come to Jesus with a prideful sense of their own importance and a disdain for Jesus' authority. Jesus, really? Some people can be like that in our culture. We don't have so much religiosity as we used to in a secular age, but we do have people who disdain authority. In fact, that's quite common. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're looking at this and thinking, there's no way I would ever bow to somebody else's authority. Jesus, really? I would urge you, don't be like these guys. Don't turn to your own efforts in pride and look down on what Jesus has already done for you. That is the mistake of the Pharisees, and they make that mistake many times during the book of Matthew. The second group of people are John's disciples. They come with a slightly more heartfelt plea. Really, Jesus? Maybe that's you today. You're thinking, it sounds good, but it's just not quite what I thought it was. That is good. It's okay to be in a space where you're asking questions but you cannot stay like that forever. You cannot sit on the fence all of life. Jesus urges you here sack religion, sack religiosity, sack whatever it is that you think will get you to God and come and enjoy the feast. Stop digging with a plastic spoon and walk through the door. That is what, that is Jesus' words, repent and believe. And then finally, we haven't focused on this character very much, which I feel a bit bad about, but then there's Matthew. Then there's Matthew himself, right at the start. And what's his response? His response is yes. Jesus? Really? That is Matthew's response. Jesus says, follow me, and he just gets up and does it. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you are enjoying the beautiful communion now with God the Father through what Jesus has done. And that is a wonderful thing. Let this passage remind you of that. Let this passage remind you of the joyous blessing and encourage you as you walk in this life with the hope of a future feast. You have been invited to the biggest wedding feast the world will ever see. You're on the waiting list. Not the waiting list, the invitation list. That's wrong, but you're waiting for it. (laughs) Isn't that exciting? As we live through this life, sometimes things can be really, really tough, but let these words be an encouragement to your heart. And let them also be a challenge. It's very easy as Christians to replace the gospel, God's grace, with something else. And it's very easy as Christians to say God's grace plus... God's grace plus my intellect. God's grace plus my ability to do this. God's grace plus all the things I'm good at as a Christian. Let me tell you, that way of thinking will ruin you. Yes, God can be very, 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 very pleased with us as Christians. He delights in us. But only when we come through Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done on the cross. Let these words, if you're a Christian, be an encouragement to your heart and a challenge to never let prideful temptation take the place of grace. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these words. Lord, sometimes reading the Bible can be very hard. We hear things we don't like to hear. And Lord, we thank you that the Bible does not mint about with its words. And Lord, we're sorry for the times when we think that our own skill and our own ability and our own intellect or whatever it is, is enough to come to you and we don't repent of the things that we do wrong. Lord, we know that is like coming to a spouse with flowers without actually saying sorry for the wrong thing that we've done. Heavenly Father, we're sorry for the times that we do that. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would uh, help us to see the glorious riches of the gospel, of the gospel of grace, and to live as people in communities of grace rather than than communities of performance and ability and, and what we have to do. Lord, we thank you for this. We pray that you would impress it on our hearts as we go out into this next week. Never let us forget it. In Jesus' name. Amen.